The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome, everyone, in the name of Jesus Christ. Welcome to you here in the room, and welcome to those tuning in online. If you're a visitor here, thank you so much for coming to worship with us this morning. Thank you so much for honoring us with your presence, and I hope you'll honor us uh, by allowing us to connect with you after service. Uh, maybe fill out a visitor card from the lobby. Uh, we'd love to be able to get to know you a little bit better, but we're grateful for your presence here with us this morning. And I want to thank everybody who was here last week and contributed to our caring contribution that we took up last Sunday. We took up the benevolence offering for our benevolence ministry, and that's a great ministry, by the way, that does some wonderful things, just like helping with utility bills and rent and medical bills and counseling fees and all that kind of wonderful stuff. So thank you for giving that. I'm pleased to announce that we're over halfway towards our goal of $30,000, but also we're only over halfway. So if you would still like to contribute to that, please do. You can put your check in the offering baskets here when we come to the tables. Just mark benevolence in the memo line. And if you want to give in other ways, talk to Delisa McKenzie after service. But I also wanted to give one more reminder uh, that if you would like to come worship with us uh, during Christmas, our service is going to be this coming Saturday, Christmas Eve at 5 p.m. So we hope that Sunday you'll spend time with your family and actually spend time in worship, that you'll read the Christmas story, that you'll sing Christmas carols, that you will partake of communion together in your homes on Sunday morning. But Saturday is going to be our service, and that'll be Christmas Eve, 5 p.m. right here. So I hope you'll be with us this Saturday for our Christmas service. But this morning is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, the Sunday focused on love, and we find ourselves in Psalm 80 this morning, verses 1 through 7 and 17 through 19. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you this morning and give thanks once again for your word 
and give thanks once again for your love. We've come to adore you, Christ the Lord. Jesus, we ask for your Holy Spirit to illuminate this psalm. And God, I ask you for the gift of preaching. Help us to take these words, receive them as grace from you. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We have some great guests coming to speak at the Springs next year, including John Mark Hicks. John Mark Hicks is a Church of Christ author, scholar, theologian, and he's going to be coming here this coming year. And so in preparation, the staff has begun to read one of his books together. It's called Anchors for the Soul. And it's a book a lot about the love of God in the midst of suffering. And John Mark Hicks begins the story of this book by telling his own life story, by talking about some of the suffering and pain that he's walked through. He talks about getting married as a young man and then his wife dying just a few years later from complications from a surgery, just three years into marriage. And then he talks about getting remarried and beginning to have children with his second wife and they had a son named Joshua. And yet they found out several years later that Joshua was born with a terminal congenital disease, something that slowly debilitated his mental and physical capacities over 16 years before it took his life. And John Mark Hicks tells the story of praying during that season while Joshua was still sick, praying with his other daughter, Rachel, before bed at night. And they would always pray for Joshua and they would pray for Miss Pat. Miss Pat was a Sunday school teacher who had contracted breast cancer. And they would pray for both of them before bed. Well, Miss Pat had gotten better. She, her cancer had totally gone into remission. She was completely healed. And so that night they were praying, thanking God for that. And they finished the prayer. And John Mark looked down at his daughter Rachel and noticed that she was crying. And he said, well, why are you, why are you sad? Why are you crying? And she said, God healed Miss Pat, right? And he said, yes, Every, everything good comes from God and God healed her, that's good. And she said, God loves Miss Pat, right? And he said, yes, yes, God loves Miss Pat. And then she asked the next logical question, doesn't God love Joshua too? This is the fourth Sunday of Advent. This is the Sunday we typically focus on God's love. That God has loved us into life, that God has loved us and redeemed us and called us to lead a life of love. God is love. And yet we suffer. And yet we walk through trials and hardships and pain. How do we reconcile those things? How do we trust in the God of hope, believing he is the God of love, even in the midst of our pain and sorrows? Well, there's almost no better place to turn to address questions like that than the Psalms. So we're gonna move back into Psalm 80, verses one through three together this morning. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, 
You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is a lament psalm. The psalmist is talking about Israel and their sufferings as a community. And yet there's that central plea of the psalm that comes in verse 3, which is, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. That's the central line of the psalm because it happens three times, and it's actually the closing line as well. Restore us. God, we're, we're suffering. Save us. And they make this plea to God because of God's power, right? God is, is powerful. He's the one, as verse 1 says, who's enthroned upon the cherubim, right? That's the, the Ark of the Covenant. That's the, the throne in the temple, the, the seat where God sits in authority. God has power to save. He says, stir up your might and come to save us, Lord God. Restore us. And in fact, it, it asks for God to, to make his face to shine upon us. That's to ask for God's life-giving presence, right? God's shining face means life in the midst of suffering. They're asking for life from God because God is mighty to save. But that's actually part of our frustration with suffering, isn't it? We call on God because he's mighty to save and yet we're not saved, right? We struggle with the fact that we know God is loving, we know God has the power, and yet we're not saved. We're often not restored or redeemed, right? We're often not pulled from the fire. It's Miss Pat and Joshua. Now, most philosophers and even atheist philosophers have acknowledged this isn't a logical, solid argument against God's existence, right? There's some assumptions that are hidden in there, so most have just abandoned that argument. But still, there's strong emotional weight to this line of questioning, right? Rachel's line of questioning. God is loving, he's all-powerful, and yet here we are suffering, Restore us, O oh God. But sometimes we're not restored. And that's when the questions really start to nag. And that's where the psalmist goes in verse 4. O oh Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is where we really start to see Psalm 80 in its lament. We start to see that Advent even is a season filled with darkness at times. Right? I love Advent. It's a wonderful, warm, joyful time of year because we're awaiting the Messiah, the Savior, but at the same time, the whole reason we're waiting for a savior is because we got some stuff we need to be saved from. We got some sin and suffering and death that we need to be rescued from. And it's kind of a cliche that the holiday season can be a very sad time for many of us. 
It's kind of a cliche. We turn on the radio and we hear Elvis singing about blue snowflakes and blue memories. But it's a cliche because it's true. This is a hard time for many people, probably for most of us, in some way. And even as a community, we've experienced loss during this season, right? We just grieved the loss of our dearly departed Elaine Klein yesterday. We're still grieving that. The Saturday before that, my parents and I went to the funeral of a two-year-old boy. I don't know why we live in a world where people have to plan funerals for two-year-old boys, but we do. Advent can be a somber time. It can be a dark season. Think about the candles. On the first Sunday of Advent, no candles are lit. We come in the room, and now, yes, the fourth Sunday, the light is getting brighter. We're getting closer and closer every day to Jesus coming back. That's why Paul says, wake up in Romans 13. But on the first Sunday of Advent, none of the candles are lit when the service starts. We find ourselves in darkness. And that's where the psalmist is when they say, O Lord, God of hosts, in verse 4, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? When our prayers go seemingly unanswered, we start to wonder what's wrong. We start to wonder why. We start to continue to ask these questions. How long will you be angry with our prayers? Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar, and he says there seems to be almost a kind of implied confession of sin in that verse, right? That the psalmist seems to be saying, God, we've messed up as a community. We've messed up, and you're angry, but how long will you be angry? And how long will you be angry with our prayers? And yet, it's hazy. And I think that haziness is kind of instructive because one of the things I think we ought to know about suffering is that we should be very wary of imposing our own meanings on other people's suffering. We should be very wary of imposing our own meaning on other people's suffering. We should be very wary of trying to draw a line from someone else's suffering to sin. Right now, we can often draw a line from our own sin to suffering. We can say, yeah, I I did this, and clearly you can see how that cascaded to this situation I'm in right now. But we ought to be very wary of drawing the line from other people's suffering to sin, right? The people in Scripture who do that are not portrayed very positively, right? That's Job's friends. They, They look at Job's suffering, and they say, Job, What did you do, man? You totally messed up, clearly, because look at your suffering. That's the disciples in John chapter 9 when they see the blind man and they say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus rejects that false question. He says, no, this, this man is blind so I can show him the love of God right now, so I can heal him. We ought to be wary of drawing the line from other people's suffering to sin. The line from suffering to sin that we can draw is the general line that goes all the way back to the garden, right? We are suffering because the world is broken. 
because the world is fallen because of a primordial sin in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and now we are fed the bread of tears. That's what the psalmist says in verse five. You've fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. The bread of tears, that, that evocative phrase has really stuck with me for weeks now. Because it not only talks about our weeping, of course, but it also seems to evoke those times where you're so dejected and sorrowful that you can't even muster an appetite for regular bread. Ever been there? I know I've been there. I've been sitting at a table and you know, there was food in front of me and I should have been hungry, but I was in such a dark season. My stomach was actively repulsed by the food. I didn't expect to get there, but I, I remember being there. And maybe that's part of the problem that we have with suffering. Maybe not all of us deep down expect it to happen to us. Right? We, we live in such a country and century of prosperity for so many that maybe deep down some of us still believe actually the prosperity gospel. Now, most of us have learned to critique that, have learned to say, no, you know, the prosperity gospel, which says that if, if we're just faithful, if we do the right thing, God's going to bless us abundantly. We'll always have a happy life. Everything will go our way. We'll be rich. We've learned to critique that, most of us. But what if deep down, many of us still believe it ourselves? That we don't expect to suffer. Ross Douthit is a op-ed columnist for the New York Times, and he's a Christian. And he wrote a book last year called The Deep Places. And in this book, he details his journey with chronic suffering. So he's a very successful, Harvard-educated, beautiful family. They're about to make their move to their dream house in New England when he contracts chronic Lyme disease. And in this book, The Deep Places, he, he chronicles just the daily, day-in, day-out ravaging of his body. I mean, just the excruciating detail of the pain in the book is crazy. And he talks about suffering in relationship to his faith as well. He talks about the fact that some people will, will kind of say, yeah, well, faith is just a crutch for, for weak-minded people. And he says, yeah, you better believe I leaned on faith during that time. You better believe it was a crutch. I leaned harder on my faith in God during that season. However much I questioned his goodness, I leaned harder on that hope and idea than any other in the rest of my life. Right? And he, he talks also about not appreciating when people would try to tie up his suffering in a neat bow, right? This kind of kind providentialism of God's loving plan. He said, I would think, well, great, what if his plan is for me to lose everything, not just my health, but also my job and my family and my marriage as well. But then he said something worth pondering. 
is that a lot of us frame this question of suffering as why do bad things happen to good people? But he said, he writes, if God gave his son to the cross, then a version of the same test is what every Christian should expect. Those are hard words to swallow. They're about as palatable as the bread of tears. And yet, maybe he's onto something. Right? If we follow Jesus, the suffering servant, sometimes we're going to follow him through the valley of the shadow of death. If we follow Jesus, the, the son of man who cried out, sometimes we're going to have to expect to follow him through dark seasons of suffering. Jesus was fed the bread of tears and Hebrews chapter five says as much in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And yet like Jesus we cry out for rescue. We cry out with the psalmist, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. That's where the psalmist ends our passage in verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 18 uses a very small but important word, then. Then we shall not turn back from you. What is indicated by this then? Then speaks of a future. Then speaks of a time where Israel doesn't turn back. Then speaks of a future in which Israel, the psalmist, sufferers are restored. Then speaks, in other words, of God's perfect eternity of love. I finished C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, a few weeks ago. It's a really good treatment of a lot of these topics. And he gets all the way through nine chapters and he finally gets to the last chapter of the book which is just simply called Heaven. And he quotes the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter eight where Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And Lewis says, if that's true, then a treatment of the topic of suffering that leaves out heaven is like leaving out almost the whole of one side of the argument, right? If we talk about our sufferings here and now and never talk about the then, we've left out most of the discussion, Right? Because there are a lot of things that we go through in this life that we can't possibly think of being restored. On this side of eternity, there are a lot of things you and I and all of us could name or have walked through or have seen people walk through that we can't possibly answer or reconcile on this side of eternity. 
But if there's going to be a restoration, the only possible answer for some of it, for a lot of it, is beyond the grave. The only possible answer must be the life of heaven. We cannot see how God will reconcile some of those worst tragedies in our lives. We can't see how God will reconcile the death of a two-year-old boy. But in fear and trembling, and with faith maybe beset by questions, we believe somehow he will. We believe somehow beyond in the then he will. We believe somehow that God can restore in his perfect eternity. And the reason we believe God can do that, the reason we believe he can take the most horrific of tragedies and somehow redeem it is because we've seen him do it once. We've seen him do it at least once. The NIV translates verse 17, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man who you have raised up for yourself. You know Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself in the gospels? The son of man. And the psalmist speaks cryptically here of this son of man that God has made strong or chosen or raised up for yourself. We believe that God can reconcile and restore even the worst of sufferings because God has taken Jesus Christ on the cross and he's made it resurrection Easter Sunday. God has taken Jesus Christ who was fed the bread of tears, who walked the road of suffering, and God has raised up Jesus, and that is our assurance of the love of God. Before his son Joshua died, John Mark Hicks spoke to his daughter Rachel again. He spoke to her about the love of God, and he told her, he said, yes, God loves Joshua too. Jesus died for Joshua, and even though God may not heal Joshua now, one day God will heal him. Just like Jesus and all of us, one day Joshua will die, but just like Jesus, one day God will heal him by raising him from the dead. And then right after this, in the closing words of a chapter on love he writes this when the doubts creep in and the fears debilitate I remember the cross of Jesus Christ I can stand beside the coffin of my wife and doubt God's love and I did but I cannot kneel at the foot of the cross and doubt it God has offered me an undeniable testimony of love We've been fed the bread of tears. But Jesus was fed the bread of tears so that he could feed us the bread of life. Jesus invites us to his table where he feeds us the bread of life. Even if we're still feeding on the bread of tears, he offers the bread of life. Even if we're still drinking the cup of suffering, he offers the cup of salvation. 
And at these tables, when we partake of the bread of life, we're reminded of the then. We're reminded of the marriage supper of the Lamb that John talks of in Revelation. And he says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. Jesus was fed the bread of tears so he could feed us the bread of life. And there will be a day, a then, when there's no suffering. Imagine that. Imagine a perfect eternity of God's love feasting on the bread of life. But right now, maybe in the midst of bread of tears, maybe in the midst of the cup of suffering, he still offers that bread of life right here. He still offers that cup of salvation to bind us together as a community that can remind each other of the love of God even in suffering. Jesus invites us to the tables because he was fed the bread of tears and God raised him up to give us the bread of life. Springs Church, come and receive the bread of life at the tables.